it's nice to be here. <clears throat> so, uh, I thought this evening I would um, give you the whole thing in one shot here. Um, uh, so I'd like to hold two pieces. One is, uh, I will call it the graduated path, and the other is the graduated view. And the graduated path itself really has to do with what they call placement practice, which is, is the meditation practice itself. Uh, and the other is really uh, the quality of investigation that's necessary uh, to have a proper view of, uh, of how this, in, in essence, how this all works. Uh, I have to qualify this after Mary Grace said, well, a, lo- a lot of different uh, paths, and I was thinking, oops, yes, many, many, many. So it's uh, in a way what I'm going to be speaking about is a mix here of uh, traditions. Uh, I was, uh, when I was thinking graduated path, I realized that uh, my first practices back in uh, 1966, I was living in Paris, and I got a book called Concentration. And I was just really in getting high then, you know, how do you get high? So what I learned was uh, actually using a candle uh, as a first uh, kind of way uh, that uh, really taught me a lot about tranquility. Uh, Later, when I came to California and... and, uh, that uh, fall of that year. I, um, from Zen Center, I learned a little bit about uh, sitting, but the problem was I didn't get the instructions because I don't know if they had any, but I surely didn't get any. <laughs> and I remember when I first went to Asia, uh, I sat, but I sat and my practice was simply, uh, really I would call it body tranquility, where I would sit and to keep quiet, but my mind uh, was just one big storyteller. And I don't know if you do this at all. <laughs> you know, uh, it just was a big chatterbox. You know, so I'd sit and there'd be this big chatterbox going on. And uh, uh, fortunately, I realized that uh, maybe that wasn't uh, the whole practice in some way. So I began this uh, process of. Uh, trying to find out ways in which uh, to to kind of uh, what uh, have a proper relationship to my mind and to thinking and to the body. So the practice in the kind of graduated uh, practice of this starts traditionally uh, now I, I have to qualify again that my I was first a, a kind of a sadhu type with long hair and beard and all that stuff and, you know, barefooted and, and uh, running through India with a, my skirt on and, and uh, my purse and, and uh, uh, truly a uh, bit of a madman. And um, But I was actually then, uh, one of my friends uh, told me about an ashram in on the Ganges where I went and then... Uh, shaved my head and, and then I was walking around with an orange G-string on and, <laughs> and uh, a lungi and, and kind of all garu, all orange clothes uh, for a while and then it was on to the Tibetan world of uh, taking what I was actually Genyan which was uh, a novice Tibetan monk 
and then later Theravadan uh, uh, what uh, monk. Uh, so anyway, there's this whole combination of things. So this isn't one path that I'm saying that one particular school or anything teaches. So the first they start off with saying you have to, and coming to meditation is you need an external object, simply because uh, most of the mind is uh, continuously looking at external objects. So they talk about that as taking uh, what is known as kasanas, or uh, for instance, uh, a candle, uh, which is fire. Uh, There's a rock, uh, which is earth, uh, a bowl of water, the water element, and, and also the colored discs, which are uh, kasana practices, which are external concentration practices, which are there really first for tranquility and to place the mind, to place the mind on an object so it stops running off in the 10,000 directions. Now, there's also, they, they talk about them as uh, impure, impure objects also, and I'll have to add in, because this is out of the Tibetan tradition, they talk about the pure objects of taking something like uh, the Buddha and using uh, a picture or a statue of the Buddha or some representation uh, of what they say the awakened mind on some level, something that represents that. And so that brings also the one-pointedness plus uh, a sense of uh, openness or... Um, uh, also devotion, uh, which is necessary in the sense of uh, this is a process of surrendering, ultimately, that we have to find a way to surrender. So you can use either any of these objects as external objects. And then they talk about, actually, then you have to actually go and begin to train uh, in bringing the attention uh, from the external to the internal. Now, on the internal, traditionally, uh, in the practices, uh, the simplest thing, of course, uh, is using the breath. Now, I thought I would add a piece tonight, which is for uh, disruptive thinking. And uh, I'm sure you don't have this, but I (laughs) happen to have a lot of it. So there is a thing called, uh, it's actually called base breathing, a base, like a a base, vase, breathing. And I'm, I thought I'd just go ahead and do it for a minute. And it's used as a practice for a way to dispel uh, at the beginning of a sitting uh, the discursive mind. Okay. And what it is is first is starting, and usually it's done anywhere from three to nine times at the beginning of a sitting, for instance. Uh, and it is a base. The base itself, or vas, is uh, the lowest part of the belly. Okay, and the practice is is that you you take a deep breath in, and they say they talk about it as you take a deep breath on, and it's like a jar. The vase is like a jar, and you put the top on it, and then you open it up, and you let it out. And so, in this way, you take in the breath in the lower belly, you hold it for a moment, and then you let it out. And they say in letting it out, it's it's to actually feel it to go through, and this is not something you do um, with force. It's something you do in relaxation. So, But there, there's also a, a somewhat a visualization of letting any kind of negativity out. 
uh, is part of the practice. So I'm just going to have you for a minute. Just go ahead and, and uh, take a moment here. We'll just do a couple breaths. Uh, and this is breathing below the navel. So everything above the navel you leave. You know, It's just to bring the full attention and the breath into uh, this area uh, below the navel. And just to expand that area with a breath, a big breath. And then to put the lid on it, hold it. And then let it out. (coughs) And then again, just do it a few times. So this is a practice that is, uh, again, one of the skillful means that can be used uh, at the beginning of a sitting when the mind is very discursive. And I know that uh, you know that does happen. Uh, you're not all sitting in a little cabin in Vajrapani. Uh, you're living your lives, and discursive thinking is uh, part of the reality of what we live with. So it's just the ways like Mary... Grace was talking about having the intention to begin with or the aspiration and then also a way to uh, bring some energetics uh, into uh, the practice itself. So I thought that might be helpful as a a tool. Uh, Tools are always helpful. You should always have a big bag of tools. Uh, um, The practice is like that. So the practice in the sense of the graduate path is then bringing the attention uh, to uh, this tranquility of body and finding some way to bring the mind uh, to rein it in. Uh, This is called a mental cultivation. So we're cultivating uh, this reining in of the uh, discursive mind and finding some way to have it uh, semi, I could, could say, semi-settle. Now, in the tradition, there are techniques uh, that are helpful in that way. They call the kind of the the what um, probably the most common used in many systems is actually counting the breath. You know, that that is a b- very helpful. I use it a lot, in just as a way uh, to again this one-pointedness uh, to bring the mind into relationship uh, without the discursive thinking and disturbing emotions uh, which also uh, wreak havoc uh, as the uh, thinking does as well. And so we need to calm all this down. That's really the fundamentals here so that we can actually create uh, a steadiness, a stillness uh, a mind that's not so discursive, uh, but actually is resting uh, in the simplicity of the experience of moment to moment. And that is really this one point of this. And I can't say how this is most important, because without this, we can't really have what is known as the vipassana or the, uh, the, the special seeing or to see clearly or... Uh, also another translation is, is intensely see uh, into the nature of things. 
because that's really what we're trying to do. Once the mind is steady enough and the disturbing emotions aren't uh, kind of uh, running us off in 10,000 directions, that we can begin to actually settle ourselves. Now, to settle ourselves is to actually do this insight practice once there's enough uh, uh, steadiness, uh, stability, uh, where we're not uh, uh, running all over the place. And when that's there, there is really what they call uh, the graduation of view. And the graduation of view uh, is a, a very fundamental process of seeing uh, directly, intuitively, uh, into our experience and uh, recognizing uh, what it is that's happening in our experience. Now, in the tradition, uh, it starts with the first of the basic insights has to do with the Four Noble Truths. You know, that we have to recognize... I like this translation of dukkha uh, as... Uh, do as im and patience, as impatience. You know, it's also translated suffering and and uh, um, you know uh, difficulty. Uh, but uh, this impatience, and I like it from a practices point of view, is really looking at impatience and seeing uh, what is impatience. What does it feel like? And what, how does it operate uh, in us? And uh, the Buddha simply said, once you begin to recognize uh, what that is and how that causes you to move, there is also the recognizing of uh, uh, kind of the, um, the underlying uh, truth of it. Uh, and that truth is this the impatience of wanting it be, to be different than it is right now. Okay? And that is a, sometimes a painful experience and reality for us. And that we p- can begin, in essence, by simply recognizing that uh, we can uh, know it. And by knowing it, there is a uh, letting it be that happens. And when we let it be, there's what? A natural relaxing, a softening that happens uh, that is not about the causes and conditions, but is just the nature of this insight that says, I've seen into the suffering, I've seen the causes of the suffering, and I'm relaxing because I understand it and know it intuitively how it's operating me. And then as soon as that happens, that softening happens there's understanding somewhat of the path itself. What, where is this going? You know, in the view itself, we're talking about uh, something simply called freedom. You know, the freedom is something uh, that is uh, recognizable uh, as part of the view of our experience. And that once we recognize that freedom is there, even in the most... Uh, sometimes um, gross ways is that we understand that from this point of view there is a path that leads to that freedom and to um, uh, let go of the impatience 
open, you know, and to act in a way uh, that um, at least lessens it, you know. And we know that is the path. The path is simply the fact that we have to uh, refine our conduct, you know, how we act in the world. Um, that is uh, one of the ways that uh, we can lessen that uh, suffering and impatience. Uh, also, uh, with that, kind of how the conduct itself, uh, there is also uh, the practice itself. You know, uh, that there is uh, a discipline uh, that's necessary, that really uh, has effort and energy in it and has this uh, mindfulness and alertness uh, that uh, also has the one-pointedness in it that brings us to some wisdom, some understanding of how this all works. And they consider that actually the view itself, uh, the uh, capacity to... um, uh, recognize uh, the thinking and the intention uh, of how this is working in some ways, getting a, the, this uh, wise view of how it works. And they say that once we have some understanding of that, okay, we have some understanding of those truths, then there is from the path or practice's point of view at that time, then we begin to see the fundamentals, okay, the, the, the um, kind of the basis uh, of experience itself, how it's happening. So that insight suddenly drops into this view uh, that is, um, uh, they talk about it as not the uh, kind of pedestrian view, but actually a subtler view of things. And that subtler view has a very identifiable um, insights. And the first of these insights is basically that what we're looking at here uh, is something that our mind is, is, the nature of our mind is that it's looking for comfort and safety. Okay? Comfort and safety. So how does it do that? No. It fixes its experience. Right? It fixes it. And that's the nature of our minds. So everything we look at, we smell, our, our kind of our senses, uh, that we want to concretize them in some way so that we'll feel safe. That's, that's how it works. Now, but that's not the truth. That's not what, when the path, when we're looking closer at what's happening here, we see that there is nothing that is not in flux. It's not something that means that at any moment everything could change. You know, you know, you had a little earthquake here some years ago. Everything can change in a moment, right? Uh, that's the nature of everything and of how experience happens. And so we began to recognize this impermanence and we began to see it and began to understand it as part of our view uh, of... Uh, the, our nature is to concretize and try to make it you know, comfortable and safe but that's not the truth of it the truth of it is it's unstable unknowable 
Uh, it is an impermanent phenomenon that is questioning, you know, uh, is it solid? Is it real? Is it uh, something that uh, I can trust that way in the kind of relative field? As we begin to kind of explore that, uh, we also begin to see that uh, our nature is to cling. And if our nature is to cling in the impermanence, then you will suffer. <laughs> Period. You will suffer. That's the nature of attachment. You know? And just to know that that is the truth. That is the truth. It doesn't mean that you can't learn to work with attachment. It means the simple view is that because of the impermanence, there's attachment. Because of attachment, you suffer. Now, there's another level of this, which is imperative, that we begin to look at. And it has to do with the mind and how the mind is creating, uh, in a sense, a dualistic experience of myself, me and mine, and everything else. So in a moment of consciousness, what arises is, and it happens simultaneously, that the knowing of it and the object arise at the same time. So there is really just six things happening. There's seeing, there's smelling, there's tasting, there's hearing, uh, there's body sensation, there's the thinking, these kind of five sense doors in the mind. And consciousness, uh, the knowing of it. Anything else? No? Uh, that is arising and passing away. And because of the, they arise simultaneous, is there is identifying with it. You know, that's me. You know? Uh, now, no one said that that's what's there. It's just that there is the, in the sense, the mind has the idea. That's me. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm arising. And from a relative point of view, that is true. You know, relatively, uh, uh, there is, we live in a dualistic world of self and other. And, but what I'm talking here is about the graduation of view. And the graduation of view says, I have to go deeper, below the conventional, and begin to question the nature of that arising and passing away, that consciousness and the objects that appear in my consciousness. And we have to begin to question that. And then as we begin to question that, uh, there is, first of all, uh, the question is, well, where is, where am I in this? You know, hold it, just a second. There's the consciousness and there's the object. You know? And one of them is me, I, mine, that is also a mental factor that comes up with the object. Uh-oh. Is that true? You know? Or is it also an impermanent phenomena? And this is part of this, uh, really it is the graduation of view, is we begin to start questioning. Questioning, uh, is that truly what and who I am? You know, uh, And this is something that's uh, below the threshold of the relative. And so we begin to make this questioning that happens. And uh, I'll just leave it to you because this is yours. 
you have to learn how this is part of the practice of how you begin to question and this is a process of investigation now I want to take it to a deeper level here even that is not enough that really says that uh, from now from a views point of view that um, it's very questionable uh, about who I think I am is something solid if everything is impermanent it may be just another mental factor something that arises due to this duality this causes conditions so I have to go one level below that even and the level below that begins to question the solidity of what I'm experiencing okay now what you're looking at you're looking, okay, if you're looking here, you're looking at me. And the question is, uh, on a relative basis, uh, I'm John, I'm sitting here, I'm also part of an impermanent phenomena that's in flux and change all the time that is due to causes and conditions. You know, that's, that's all I am. That's all you are, is these causes and conditions that come up and they talk about it as this... Um, uh, really, a uh, process of uh, uh, really uh, interdependent uh, experience that says that, oh, uh, yes, John is a right, but all these objects are rising, including him. Uh, and uh, is that real or not? Okay, from a relative point of view, this is really what we see. From an ultimate point of view, which is really about the perfection of view. The question is, am I? And I can't answer this for you. What you have to do, this is a process of investigation, of looking at the truth of uh, uh, what this is, the reality. And is it a reality? You know. Now, from a perfection of view, they use the word, um, uh, you know, kind of this cognizant uh or the knowing of uh, the kind of negative or the emptiness of what's happening. So it's not in that way I have the power to see that it is not what it appears to be. Okay? I make up what it appears to be. So I'm making up what it appears to be. And the question, is that real? You know? And they talk about it as, as um, uh, if you had a clairvoyant and the clairvoyant uh, was uh, there, and a person was dreaming that there was a tiger that was attacking them. And that clairvoyant woke them up and said, it's okay, it's just a dream. Right? It's just a dream. And in some ways, what I'm talking about is, is this ability, this, this refinement of view, is then waking up to the fact that this is just a dream. You know? That there is not that it's a negative; it's actually full of potential, and that's the truth of it. Is the potential uh, is uh, remarkable? Uh, it is unknowable to us, uh, but it really uh, we're making it up. Okay, so we can hold it in that way that that, and I'm using the word emptiness because I don't know. You know what other word, but I could also use potential. That it's this potential 
but it's not anything. It's just a potential. Now, the potential from that point of view, when we start wrecking and seeing from this refined view, what does it say? It says this is a mystery. Uh, there's no way, you know, there's causes and conditions on how it happens. But it's always something that it's not knowable. That's pretty cool. No. Where's boredom now? Uh, it can't be from that point of view so then looking at it again we can take it to another level here and the level is we begin to question you know if we're saying oh well from the ultimate point of view what I'm looking at is maybe this is just a dream or an illusion that's appearing it's also this is what it is. It is. They use the word the suchness, you know. So it is what it is, right? It may not be real, but it is what it is. And if it is what it is, then again we begin to move into something uh, that says, "Oh, well, uh, part of this um, um, potential." is that uh, there's a co-emergence that's happening. And that a co-emergence is that uh, there's, there's, this is all one thing here. This is all one mind operating that is, in essence, not separate. Uh, it can't be separate. It's actually completely connected, you know, and that connection is something that uh, is on one side the power to let go and the other power is this, uh, really this heart practice that ultimately we come to this place that says, oh, uh, we're, we're not separate. This is a, a unifying field uh, that um, you know, can cause suffering and can become awake to freedom. And so then uh, there is the practice, the view of being able to hold uh, the, what they call the two truths in the sense of, uh, from the ultimate point of view, uh, this is all, uh, it's empty of any solid reality. Okay? Just not possible. But because of that, in the relative field, the relative field says also, you and I, we are connected. You know, uh, we actually think the same way uh, our, in the way our minds and brains work, in the way, uh, what is it do you, you want? You know, oh, you want to be happy. I too want to be happy. And all beings want to be happy. This is not something fancy. You know, uh, this is something, this is, the refined view is something uh, that actually then takes and has the power to let go of its uh, kind of emotional disturbances and its um, uh, making up uh, so much. You know, it has a freedom to let go of that. And I'm not saying that we don't need it. I'm saying 
You have the power to let go of it. No. Uh, and uh, you can soften. First of all, because it's empty, it's safe. No harm. Isn't that cool? No harm. No. And when there's no harm, then there's no fear because there's no separateness. And if there's no separateness, then this is all a process of, uh, you know, uh, before I was 30, I'd spent two years in, in retreat. And, and um, you know, in my last retreat in, up the Himalayas, I came out of it and I'd been living in this little cabin. And, and you know, it boiled down to, uh, I want to be loved. I think I have the capacity to love. I question it some days. And uh, I want to help. You know, that was it. That was the whole ball game. You know? You know? Uh, it wasn't a big thing. You know? I went in thinking somehow that this was all about some rarefied state of mind uh, that I could get out of this. But ultimately, from this view, is you can't get out of it. It's not possible for you to get out of it. Okay? It doesn't mean there isn't freedom. It means that you can't get out of it. No. So, kind of paradoxical. So that's probably good. <laughs> I'd like to see where you go from there. <laughs> There's questions. Yep. The questions? I don't say I've answered, but please. I, I love your point about this being agreed by the dream with potential. It makes me think of it as kind of a lucent lucid dream that we're yeah. having, yeah. but that also affects other people's lucid dreams and sets up Repercussions. Yes. Well, <coughs> there's a kind of difference in in, in language here because they call it the alaya consciousness, and the alaya consciousness uh, is a little different than sort of Jungian view of, of the of the kind of collective unconsciousness. It means there's there is a potential here, and one of the things is you know the the, the old story about the what is it the tree that falls in the forest. Uh, how's it go? You know, does it make a sound? If there's no one there, there's make a sound. Well, from this point of view, no, no. But from the Alaya consciousness, it means that the potential in all of the planet, uh, even though that consciousness is in there, that's all consciousness, that uh, it's in there. You know, so you can't you can't say it's not there. But it's just it's a it's a it's like a. a Alaya is a kind of the stream of consciousness that exists as part of, uh, you know, I don't know, I couldn't say planetary, I'll say universal, because I think it's way beyond uh, what we know. Please, could you say your names just so I, uh, yeah. I'm Heidi. I'm Robin. Hi, Robin. Hi. Thanks, Heidi. There's the touching of uh, that non-me, I-mine place and sitting. And I'm curious what, it, what 
the experiences, maybe from your own experience, if you know, could, what the feeling is, how one is lives in the world with that as well. Well, everything's moments, right? Yeah. This is just. This is all it is. It's just moments. And the truth is that there are many moments when there's just the experience, right, of, you know, hot, cold, and all this, and there's no I in there, okay? And there are other, particularly when there's a strong attachment, then it, it arises. But it's there a lot, and I think a lot of this is pointing directly to the mind, and the mind has it's so habituated to looking at self that it doesn't see all the moments that self is not arising mm-hmm. and so it is so addicted to that particular mm-hmm. uh, contact that it can't see the other and they talk about it as looking directly at mind looking directly at mind because it's happening and it is actually a, in essence kind of a, uh, has a purity that is who you are. Ultimately, from the most proper view, is that is your what I kind of term as basic goodness or Buddha nature, or tatha, tatha tatha gata garba, which is basically Buddha nature or Buddha essence, right. or uh, you know. Can I just so mm-hmm. it sounds like I mean it's making me think that there's kind of two ways of not being I. One is like this complete unconsciousness where. Mm-hmm. Turn on TV, or you know, right? Or you, you've disappeared, but then there's another place where you're uh, you're resting in that place of not me, and there's the knowing. The or the cognizant of the selflessness of, of experience, you know. But you, but it is the cognizance that's what we're working on to wake up to uh, this. Thank you. Please. Um, when you were thank you for being here, and when we were talking about the progression. At the beginning, and you got to the point of, um, you know, there's yourself wanting things to be different, and that's what suffering That's what suffering is. And I wondered if you could, um, and then you kind of went on to the whole glorious. The view. Yeah. I wondered if you had any tools or if you could sort of open up that, that, that little juncture there from going from, hmm, I'm wanting things to be different, yeah, to so that. Okay, there's kind of, first there's kind of excitement and kind of regret sometimes, and they talk about it as if you'll look, when you get excited, you know, uh, which happens, is to actually, you have to look into impermanence. Okay, the, actually the nature of the impermanence. The same way when, say, anger or fear or jealousy arise, you have to look into love. 
Okay, these are not complicated things, but they are the kind of the antidotes to it. And the same way that when there's kind of the they call this the kind of the sluggish mind, uh, and, and uh, that the sluggish mind. There are three aspects of that. One is to bring energy up. You know, like to do that. The vase breathing I was talking about. It's actually used for that. Okay. There is also. Um, uh, which isn't talked about so much, but uh, is uh, re- recalling the Buddha, the Dharma, and meditation, uh, those three particular ones, and that we simply recall them and the, the kind of the wonder of them, because they are uh, wonders. And then the third one uh, they talk about as uh, that that brings... Um, um, I'm trying to. The, the word is actually luminosity. Okay, that when you're kind of sluggish, is that in the consciousness when it's aware of itself, there is a brightness, and you can actually bring that brightness uh, to experience. So the mindfulness actually, which has a, a mindfulness and alertness, kind of go together there, and what happens is that. Uh, when we recognize the kind of brightness, is that there is an, uh, an energetic uh, that's not coming from you. It's coming from um, the truth. You know, and it actually energizes you. Kind of cool. Yeah. So those are three. And there's, I'm, there's other ones, but, you know, my brain... <laughs> People who want to ask more questions can. Okay. So maybe we'll stop for a moment and have a couple of announcements and some, just a bit of loving kindness practice. And then those of you who might have more questions for John can catch him up here and ask a few questions um, before you go if there's anything further. Does that seem okay? Is there anything burning? That Nothing burning. Okay. So, um, just a few things to say. I'll try to keep it brief. One is that there's a beginner's class that's happening on Monday evenings here with Jason Murphy. It starts at 6.30. So, if any of you are interested in it for yourselves or for someone else that might want to learn to meditate, um, they've had their first session, but I know that it's open and new people would be welcome. So, that's Mondays at 6.30. Um, for the next two weekends on Sunday, not this Sunday, where are we? Wait a minute. Um, not this coming Sunday, the 31st and the 7th. Um, the, on the 31st, Marcy is teaching a Qigong and Vipassana day long here. And then on the 7th, um, she's teaching again along with Bob Stahl. So both of those will be really great days of Vipassana and working with the body and working with Qigong. And then just to mention that there's a, the flyer for the committed students group for this coming year is out on the table. Um, this is for people who have had some experience. Um, and we'll be working with Jack Cornfield's new book called The Wise Heart. So if you're interested in it, pick up a flyer. Um, and then there's a contact info for, for myself because I'm teaching it again along with um, Dan Landry. 
Um, there's a new group that's going to be forming to meet after the Monday shit. It's called the Dharma of Illness. And it's for people who have been ill or have disabled disabilities or chronic pain. It will be with Bob Stahl. It'll be one Monday a month after that Monday sitting. So if you, you again, know anyone that that might interest, um, please pick up a flyer. And last of all, there are now flyers for the weekend that my husband and I are doing in November for people who are interested to learn how to work with their committed relationship as part of their spiritual practice. It's called Flesh and Spirit, and it's also on the tables over here. So if you're interested in any of these things, visit the tables. There's other flyers as well. And I also think that there's um, some Mountain Stream newsletters there, and I was going to say, I forgot last week, there's probably on that website there's 60 or 70 of my talks uh, that you can, uh, if that seems fun. (laughs) (laughs) May not be so much fun, but... (laughs) And in a little bit, if you want to hear this one again, it will be on our website. That's right. So there you have it. Any other announcements? Heidi, please. Um, just ask everyone to recognize that the only thing that keeps this whole center going is us and our volunteer effort and our financial support and the cost of this center are about 3000 a month. So consider what you share of that would be and contribute in some way. There's baskets and flyers in the hallway. And also the only support for the teaching here, like to support John and his Dharma path, is us. Uh, we don't have a fund that pays for honorarium. It's us. So consider again what, what you share that should be or what you want it to be. Thank you. Um, there is a family program. It's the first Sunday of each month. And then if you check the website, um, there's a link to the family page and you can get details there. It's a great family page. You should check it out. <laughs> it's really wonderful. Anything else? Okay, so let's end with just a little bit of loving-kindness practice. So sit quite comfortably, just as you are is fine. Take a nice breath, and you can practice again John's vase breathing if your mind is feeling a little rattly, just to settle you back. And then, in a very simple way, extend some goodwill some kindness, some compassion into your own being. You can do this with a phrase of kindness and goodwill or an image or simply breathing goodwill through your body, holding yourself the way a mother would hold her beloved child. Let yourself be aware of the people sitting around you, your right, your left, in front of you, behind you, and begin to extend that same goodwill around the room, again with an image or with a phrase or with the breath, reaching out to each person here with goodwill, with kindness. You might perhaps extend some special goodwill and kindness to John in gratitude for his coming down here during his retreat time. 
and then let our goodwill go on out towards the people whom we know and love wishing every good thing for each one of them wishing them ease of being and then letting our awareness go on out reaching all around the planet reaching out to every person to every creature of this earth and then on out to all beings in all directions in all realms all beings everywhere extending our kindness and our goodwill out into the universe and then we gather up all of the merit of our practice together this evening all of the goodness and benefit of it and we offer this goodness and this benefit to all of these beings that all beings may be happy that all beings may be peaceful and that all beings everywhere may come to a complete end of suffering. <coughs> so thank you very much for your presence and your practice. John will be here. I'd like to invite you to say hello to your neighbors because there's a number of you who are new this evening. And then I'll hang out in the hallway and catch people as you leave. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.